0: And so, Lord God, that's our prayer, what Michael just said with the keyboard. Be thou my vision, O Lord, of my life, my best thought by day or by night. Help us, Lord God, now to preach that. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, for 16 weeks, about a year and a half, we've been preaching through the Revelation and uh, got to the end and discovered that it can pretty much be summed up in two words. Remember? Worship God. That's right. Worship, worship God. People always want to know, what am I supposed to do, pastor? Answer? Worship God. The Revelation is pretty much a call to worship. Worship God. The way that the seven little churches are to conquer, The way that we are to conquer the beast, the harlot, the ancient dragon, uh, the way that we are to live and move and have our being is by doing this. We are to worship God. Worship God. Who is he? Well, he's that slaughtered lamb standing on the throne. Worship God. So that presents kind of an obvious question, right? What is worship? Worship. I mean, to me, worship, that, that, that word conjures up images of stuffy choir robes, uh, ancient cathedrals, boring liturgies. And sometimes, sometimes people with big hair, polyester, people putting their hands in the air, running around, acting all super happy and making me feel kind of sad. So what is worship? Well, this is worship. Those are people doing the wave at Mile High Stadium worshiping the Denver Broncos. This is what they look like up close. They can be rather enthusiastic and, and intimidating. Bronco Bronco worshipers. This is also worship. That's some dude worshiping Suzuki. This is also worship. That's another dude worshiping a four-speed quad uh four a uh, four-speed Dual quad, pause attraction, 409. That's in a 1960 Chevy Impala, by the way. This this is worship. This is how some of us worship beer. Um, This is how Vincent Van Gogh worshiped sunflowers or the one who made sunflowers. This is worship. It serves really no practical purpose. Someone's worshiping Abraham Lincoln or maybe the US government or maybe the one who made Abraham Lincoln or, or freedom. Art, poetry, music, that's all worship. In a jailhouse down in Dixie, fighting crime and risking life, dwell the sheriff and his buddy, pistol pack and Barney Fikes, there oh, Oh, my darin', oh, my darin', Barney Fye. He's a deadly crime stopper. What a copper, Barney Fye. (laughs) And one day there come a-ridin' Two bad men to rob a bank. But Fife was tricky, a dead-eye dicky. Now they're locked up in the tank. Oh, my Barney, Barney had a jail could it. Had one bullet for his pistol. Had to keep it in his pocket. <laughs> for those of you who lack culture, that's Barney Fife worshiping uh, himself. In a sense, everything that a person uh, might do could could be could be worship. I imagine that some were disappointed in the revelation because it doesn't really tell us what to do except worship. Worship God. Worship is enjoying something, praising something, exalting something, or lifting something up. It's getting excited about something. (laughs) And real worship is fun. Years ago, someone from church gave me three tickets to the Rockies game. You know, back when they used to play at Mile High Stadium? So I took my two oldest, John was about six, Elizabeth was about five. I said, hey guys, we're going to the Rockies. They were like, yahoo, we're going, we're going. Of course, we were in the nosebleed section, but they were just having an incredible time. They were having a blast, screaming and yelling. I got us some pizza. We had a picnic under the lights in in the stadium. We finished uh, the pizza, and all at once, John stood up. His eyes got really big, and he said, hey, Daddy, look, look, there's some guys down there. There's some guys down there, and they're playing baseball. And Elizabeth said, hey, yeah, there are guys down there, and they're playing baseball. Turns out my kids didn't know that the Rockies were a baseball team. They thought the whole thing was just this, uh, the Rockies was this big stadium where people gathered and screamed together in unison and sometimes ate pizza. I said, well, yeah, look at that. There's guys down there playing baseball. And they were like, okay, we can go now. They didn't care about baseball. They just loved worshiping. Each of us is like that. We're each made to worship. We worship like we breathe. We're born to worship. That's what it is to be human. It's your favorite thing to do. Whether you know it or not, worship is fun. And the Revelation told us, worship God. Now, if you're like me, something inside of you thought, oh crap, I'm not into polyester and pipe organs and lifting my hands in the air and faking like I'm all happy when I'm really kind of pissed off and have gas. I think I'd rather worship the Rockies or the, the Broncos or Susie Q or a four-speed dual-quad pause attraction 409, or how about beer? Worship that. Or sunflowers, or, or the sun, or Abraham Lincoln, or me, but God, ah, what a drag. And the revelation says, worship God. In Israel, they had a worship book of poems and songs, all for the sake of worshiping God. It's called the Psalms. And so I'm planning to preach some messages from from the psalms, and I hope that they'll help us worship. And now you made me thinking, hey, I I thought you said worship was fun. The psalms aren't fun. Arthur, Arthur, King of the Britons. Oh, don't grovel. One thing I can't stand is people groveling. Sorry. And don't apologize. Every time I try to talk to someone, it's sorry this, and forgive me that, and I'm not worthy. What are you doing now? I'm averting my eyes, oh Lord. Well, don't. It's like those miserable psalms. They're so depressing. Now knock it off. Yes, Lord. Right. Well, God is right. Or, Or I should say, Monty Python's version of God is at least partly right. Some psalms are really miserable. I think that's because we are really miserable, and the Psalms, they meet us where we're at. They're shockingly, shockingly honest. They meet us where we're at, get us to admit where we're at, but they don't leave us where we're at. I should also mention that they're written in Hebrew and often translated by religious types that were probably a little pissed off and had gas when they translated it out of the Hebrew. And they probably used religious words to translate words that were fairly common in the, in, in the culture of the, of the psalmist. Also remember that we don't hear the Hebrew beatbox. I, I mean, ancient Hebrew style is different than our own. You know, poetry is nearly impossible to translate from one language to another language, and on top of all that, we don't have the musical score to any of these songs. However, we do know something about the author behind most of the, of the Psalms. That's David, King David. And he was a fun guy. It could be kind of intense at times, but he was a fun guy. One day during a religious military parade, worshiping in front of the Ark of the Covenant, David got so worked up, he stripped down to this loincloth sort of thing, a linen ephod, danced just like out of control, so that in fact it appears he even kind of exposed himself while he's dancing out of control in front of the entire nation. Uh, The queen is utterly scandalized, but God and several of the young maidens thoroughly enjoyed David's dance." there are 150 psalms or or songs psalm psalm means song we won't read them all, 150, about half of them are explicitly attributed to David within the text of the Psalms themselves. The, the last Psalm explicitly attributed to David is Psalm 145. And so many people have postulated that this is the last Psalm that David ever wrote, kind of like the summation of his life's wisdom, his grand finale. So let's start there. This is Psalm 145, a song of praise of David. Now, I should mention, this is an acrostic poem. Um, That means each stanza starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it was designed, you see, so that people could memorize it. And it was recited or sung three times a day in the synagogue in later Judaism. That's how important it was. Verse 1, I will extol, exalt or lift up you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. Do you know that you have the power to bless God? I mean, that's crazy. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Praising God is exalting God, and that's worship. But why should we worship? Because it will fry us if, if we don't, maybe? You know, that notion that he might fry you, that could make you sing songs or dance a a jig, but I don't think it would make you worship in spirit and in truth, and that's what God wants. So, So why worship? Is God insecure, maybe? Verse 3 Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor, the Kavod Hador, of your majesty, the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome, that can also be translated terrible, your terrible deeds, and I will declare your greatness. So what are these terrible, awesome, great deeds? I mean, at first pass, I would think of something like maybe parting the the Red Sea. And yet I've never seen the Red Sea part. Actually, David never saw that either. He spent a lot of his life hiding in caves from King Saul, who was trying to kill him as a young man, or fleeing the palace from his son Absalom, who was trying to kill him as an, as an old man. David never saw the sea part, at least not the Red Sea. Most of Israel never saw the sea part. Do you realize they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years before they saw one lousy stinking miracle? 400 years. Maybe you've never seen what you would call an awesome, terrible deed. So worshiping God for that feels like a bit of an act to you. So why worship God? Verse 7, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. And shall sing aloud of your righteousness, your rightness. Uh, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's what God told Moses on the mountain. The Lord is good to all. Like maybe even the good to all, as if God alone is good. You know that word good tobe in Hebrew. It's the same word used to describe. Uh, that thing hanging on the tree in the middle of the garden, on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the, the knowledge of Tob. Verse 9, the Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Have you ever seen something that God made? See, David didn't think that things had just always existed. He thought that God made everything, and not just from nothing, but from himself. As if the Big Bang were like a womb that opened up in God that would give birth to us. That word mercy, Rahamim, comes from the root word meaning a root word that, that means womb, and sometimes the King James Version even translates this word as womb. It's like God made everything by giving birth to everything. Birth is a bit terrible. Awesome and wonderful oh, all at once. A friend of mine once had a vision of Jesus lying on our communion table giving birth. That's terrible awesome, and wonderful all at once. Jesus Christ and him crucified is terrible, awesome, and wonderful all at once. Verse 19, the Lord is good to all. It's important to remember that all means all, (laughs) and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. Rocks and stones are his work. Trees are his work. Can rocks and stones sing? Can trees clap their hands? David seemed to think so. Jesus seemed to think so. All your works shall give you thanks, uh, O Lord, thanks to you. And all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory, the kavod, of your kingdom, and tell of your power. That may be his power to create all things. That may be his power to part the Red Sea. But I think it may also refer to something else. The comma is supplied by the translator. So listen, verse 11. They shall speak of the glory, the kavod, of your kingdom, and tell of your power, power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. How does God make known to you his glorious splendor? The kavod hador. Verse 13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. His kingdom is eternal, and he rules over all the ages of time. The Lord is faithful in all his words. That means he doesn't lie. Doesn't lie, his word is always uh, true, isn't it? But it's not only true, his word is the truth itself, or himself, faithful in all his words, and kind, chasid from chesed, in all his works. That means everything he does is steadfast love. God is love. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who are falling. Jeez, all of humanity has fallen or is falling the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down sounds like all of humanity will be raised up as if all who have died in Adam will be raised up and upheld in Christ verse 15 the eyes of all the eyes of all look to you is that true or is David just full of crap? I mean, I think you're supposed to ask these questions of Scripture. What do all eyes look to? What's the only thing that eyes look to? (laughs) The light. God is light and Jesus is the light of the world, his word. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. He may not give you pizza every time you ask. I've tested this. That's true. He may not give you pizza every time you ask, but he will give you just what you need when you need it. That's what David is is saying. Verse 16, you open your hand, the strong right hand of the Lord, the strong arm of the Lord. You satisfy the desire of every... Every living thing. Holy crap, what a statement. Did you just read that? You satisfy the desire of every living thing. What does every living thing desire? The good. The tobe. You look that up in a lexicon and it will say, that which is desirable. That's what the word means. When we satisfy our own desire for the good, we're often not good to the good. But the good will satisfy the desire of every living thing for himself, the good. God alone is good. And as we saw in the Revelation and in Genesis, from the beginning, knowledge of the good is hanging on a tree in a garden. God is the good, and his word is the way that the good comes to us. You open your hand, your strong right hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is right, righteous, right in all his ways and kind in all his works. God is good. God is love. His word is the way, the truth, the life. Anything and everything that a person could possibly want to worship is him. He is everything that is right and nothing that is wrong. The Lord is near to all who call upon, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of the, the desire of those who fear him. Fear is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom in flesh or love in flesh is the end of fear. Perfect love casts out fear. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Yahweh alone is. Is Savior, says Scripture. Every heartbeat, every breath is Him and His Word, the way. Every time you lose your car keys and you find them, that was Him. Because He's the way. Verse 20 The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. He will destroy. now something inside of you just said, or maybe it said earlier if you were reading ahead, okay, BS. Peter, I call BS on everything you just said. I call BS on all those wonderful things you just said about God, that he is love and always kind as his mercy is over all that he has made. I call BS because you just read the wicked he will destroy. And according to the Bible, I'm pretty wicked. How can God destroy the wicked and be kind to all that he has made? Did he make me or not? That's a good question. Are you a self-made man? Self-made woman? Verse 21. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless His holy name forevermore. You know, I think that may be the question on Judgment Day. Will you let all flesh bless His holy name forevermore? Because that's what heaven is. All creation, all flesh, blessing His holy name forevermore. So will you let Adolf Hitler, Judas Iscariot, your ex-wife, the butthead that got you fired, Will you let them bless his holy name forevermore? Or let me ask the question in an even, in an even more uh, pertinent, harder, harder form. Will you let you bless his holy name forevermore? Because you just called BS on all of David's reasons for blessing his holy name forevermore. Because we just read, all the wicked he will destroy. And so you just judged God's judgment saying, it's impossible for God to have mercy on all all that he has made and destroy the wicked. Impossible. Is that impossible for God? Can the Creator destroy something and remake it? And would that be merciful? In other words, if God turns something to dust, is he incapable to do anything with that dust? God's like, I just don't know what to do with dust. And what if wickedness is not something that God made, but something more like the manifestation of the void in which everything is made, like the dark in which the light is revealed? or the chaos in which we learn to love the logos or the way, the lies that cause us to long for the truth, the unrighteousness that makes us hungry and thirsty for righteousness, the void that makes us long for creation, and the creator, our sin, that makes us long for grace, and God is grace. Do you realize that your chief complaint against God is that he doesn't destroy the wicked? And that which is wicked, it's always been your chief complaint against God. So I'm calling B.S., on you're calling B.S. On, on God. Ever since you learned to take knowledge of good from the tree, it's been your chief complaint. God, where do you tolerate my sister? Where do you tolerate those jocks and those... That make fun of me, that tease me in gym class. Why do you tolerate my ex-wife and the butthead that got me fired? Why do you tolerate Iranians and Persians and Egyptians? Why do you tolerate Canaanites and Jebusites? That was David's question. But as he got older, the question changed from "Why do you tolerate them?" to "Why do you tolerate me?" Well, the wonderful, wonderful news is that God will destroy the wicked, and God will destroy you, the old you, the you that you thought you had made. And in his or her place, God will reveal the you that he has made. Actually, in your darkness, chaos, lies, and decay, God will reveal his light the way, the truth, the life, even the kavod hador. So what is the glorious splendor that David is talking about, and how does God make it known to you? Well, the kavod hador, the glorious splendor of God's majesty, that would be the substance of God's dominion or His reign and rule. Kavod Hador is the thing that would appear on top of the ark between the cherubim behind the veil in the Holy of Holies. We now know that it's a lamb standing as if he had just been slain. We now know that it's everything that we just spent 16 months studying in the Revelation. We now know it's how God destroys the wicked and makes all things new. It's how God makes everything that's anything. We now know that it's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is how God makes all things new, including you. He is how God destroys the old you and gives birth to the true you, uh, the new you, the real you. He is love in flesh, the good in flesh. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is anything and everything a person could possibly ever want to worship. And he always comes to you as grace. You cannot possess him as a thing that you have captured, contained, or comprehended. And if you try, if you nail him down, it will only lead to the revelation of who he truly is, your creator, who will not stop loving you, for he is love and his word is mercy. You cannot possess him. But you will worship him. David couldn't contain him. David couldn't explain him, couldn't comprehend him, but David could trust him. He would trust him when he would go to the house of the Lord, sit before the throne in front of the veil, and begin to worship. It was his favorite thing to do. And it's your favorite thing to do, whether you realize it or not. In fact, if you think really, really hard about a moment in which you were truly happy, you will discover that you were worshiping. It may have been sitting on the porch drinking an ice-cold can of bud, staring at the sunset, a vase of sunflowers on a, on a stand right beside your, your rocking chair. It may have been the day that you bought a 62 Chevy Impala with a four-speed dual-quad pause traction 409. It may have been making love to your bride, Susie Q, on your honeymoon night It may have been a moment one afternoon at Mile High Stadium, a moment that you got caught up in the drama. You know, they started doing uh, the wave. It looked like everything was lost, but Elway or or Manning led that uh, come-from-behind, last-minute drive. And as you were standing and screaming for a moment, you forgot about yourself. You forgot about you your anxieties and your insecurities and, and your fears and your constant struggle to be good. Your wickedness. For a moment you stopped trying to be good and you celebrated the good. You lost yourself and later you realize, hey, I was happy. The only problem is Elway retired. (laughs) Peyton Manning got arthritis. And although it was heaven for you, it was hell for the Baltimore Ravens, or maybe the Dallas Cowboys. (laughs) But what if, what if, what if instead of worshiping the Denver Broncos, you could like use the Denver Broncos to worship courage, and perseverance, and teamwork, and the love in the eyes of your kids sitting next to you, eating pizza. What if instead of worshiping a 62 Chevy Impala, you could worship the logic, truth, and beauty in the four-speed dual-quad Positraction traction 409? What if instead of worshiping the sun, you could worship the one who made the sun, who is the light? What if instead of worshiping wine, you could you could worship God? with wine. What if instead of worshiping Susie Q, you could worship God in the temple that is Susie Q, uh, saying, thank you, God, for Susie Q and the way she walks. Behold, it is good. It's good. What if? What if? Well, then maybe you wouldn't destroy Susie Q, and maybe you wouldn't destroy you, Maybe you wouldn't become an idolater in need of destruction. And then maybe you would never ever have to stop doing your favorite thing to do. We'll talk about that more next week. For now, I just hope you see that God is the good. And God is the good in everything that's anything and you were made and you are being made to worship him. When we learn to worship him, we get all things with him, for we see that he is the good in everything, and everything is a gift from him that ultimately somehow is him. So we don't consume the good like beasts and harlots. We worship the good who is God and enjoy the good in everything he has made, including us, especially us, his temple, his body, his bride. So why worship? If you ask that question, you do not yet understand. Worship is your favorite thing to do. And worship is how you are made in the image of God. I mean, just just look at these, just look at these guys. No one told them that they had to dress like this or act like this. <laughs> they just worshipped, and they were made in the image of the Broncos, and they seemed to be happy, at least at least for, for a moment. Worship is your favorite thing to do, and worship is how you are made in the image of God, and worship is how the Holy Spirit in you changes the world. We're here because seven little churches in Asia Minor worshipped. And one generation after another generation worshipped. And if you still don't feel like worshipping, just look at the kavod hador on the throne of God at the top of the ark in the sanctuary of the Lord. Are you looking? He took bread and broke it saying, this is my body given to you. And in the same manner, he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you. So may you worship as you come to the throne. And may you worship as you leave the throne. And may you never, ever, ever stop worshiping. So did it happen? I mean, if it did happen, you weren't aware of it while it was happening. I'm asking, did you exalt him? Because in that moment, you weren't thinking about yourself or whether you were on key or how long the service was gonna go or Um, whether or not you liked the song or didn't like, you were thinking about Him. And for a moment, you are happy. You see, that's the way, according to Scripture, that we're to live our entire lives. And singing, I think, is kind of sacramental. It's a lot like communion. You do something your whole life, and then one day you realize, I'm actually eating God. That's pretty freaky, you know what I mean? So uh, singing is like that. Um, where I'm I'm saying this stuff, and I may be lost somewhere else, but it helps me to manifest the thing that my whole life is supposed to be, which is this song to God. So we've been hoping, and this is what we're planning to do, is spend a little more time singing each week. And so Vince is going to start a little earlier uh, each Sunday, and we invite you to come and just kind of prepare yourself in the sanctuary. And then uh, after the message, which will probably be a little shorter, we'll have more time uh, for singing and for worshiping, uh, which is that sacrament, opportunity for you to work at enjoying God, losing yourself, thinking about God. And then I'll give uh, each week the benediction, which will kind of like be the bless you. If you need to go to the bathroom, feel free to go to the bathroom or leave or whatever. If you want to go talk in the narthex, God bless you, go talk. That is a holy activity. And that is also uh, worship. If you want to stay and sing a little more, we invite you to stay and sing a little more. Um, My wife is the artistic, poetic type, you know, prophetic type. And she had this vision of... uh, the river of life flowing from the cross. And so we kind of even have a river of life up here, a blue ribbon that we'll pull out. And uh, the worship team, each Sunday for the next several weeks, we'll see how long it'll go. Uh, Not the worship team, some members of the prayer team, Susan, myself too, will be down front here. And if you, uh, during that uh, time of worship singing, would like prayer for whatever, um, um, we'd just be happy to pray with you and down down in the front here. Today is uh, we're also having our congregational meeting to present the budget. So we're kind of starting, but also kind of not starting. We'll start a little bit. We're gonna sing for about 10 more minutes and then we're gonna come back in and have the congregational meeting to present uh, the budget. But uh, let's start. So this is um, the beginning and Susan's gonna roll out the river, right? Is that, did I get that right? So when I was giving communion, she said, it's important that you stand in the river. So I was standing in the river. So we rolled out the the river. And um, and, uh, as I was, let this, maybe this can be a benediction. Um, The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism that every little Presbyterian kid is supposed to learn is what is the chief end of man? In other words, why do you exist? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Someone said, you know what, it really ought to say to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And you see, that's, (laughs) I mean, is, is that crazy? That's what God wants from you, to enjoy Him. And He is everything that's good. So may you believe the gospel and worship.